Good morning. My name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I'm one of the preachers here at GFC. Uh, the other day, uh, I was downstairs working on the dishes while my wife, Steph, finished up preparing our dinner. My son, Aiden, was playing in the adjacent room, and my daughter, Addie, was upstairs playing. It was a moment when everyone was at peace, and we were all content, and we were about to sit down for our dinner. Did you hear ominous music? <laughs> Hang on. I told Aiden to go upstairs and to call his sister for dinner which he did, and she came down, and then we all lived happily ever after. Seriously, everyone obeyed. We did what we were supposed to do, and everything went great. This is a rather common story, but it's only noteworthy because of how many ways that it could have gone wrong, and on other occasions it has gone very wrong. But today we're going to see a similar picture. We're going to see God's servant and how he obeys the father, doing what he is supposed to do. And because of that obedience, he is vindicated in his suffering by the father. But we'll also get a warning of what could happen when not everyone does what they're supposed to do. And the outcome is very, very different. As we talk today, we'll use this story several times to illustrate both what godly obedience looks like and what failure to obey looks like. Today, we're going to discuss the last eight verses of Isaiah 50, which is on page 395, if you have one of the church Bibles. And in these verses, we'll see both sides of this picture. We'll see on the one hand, God's obedient servant, obedient to the word of the one who sent him. And we'll see the consequences when not everything goes as it should. Start by looking closely at the the obedient servant in Isaiah 50, 4 through 6. Then we'll see the servant vindicated in Isaiah 50, 7 through 9. And lastly, we will hear a command to obey the obedient servant and receive a warning in Isaiah 50, 10 through 11. So consider God's obedient servant as we read together Isaiah 50, 4 through 6. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. The first question to ask is who is the I and the me in these verses? Well, Dan actually answered this question for us last week. He covered chapter 48 and the beginning of this chapter 50. The I is not the nation of Israel who up until now has been an imperfect servant of God, but it is a new and a perfect servant of God. Go ahead to listen to Dan's sermon from last week online if you want to hear more about that, uh, that particular discussion. But here in these verses, we see two individuals acting. Yahweh acts and the servant acts. 
Let's look first at what Yahweh does. First in verse 4, Yahweh gives his servant a tongue of those who are taught. God is empowering the servant to speak on his behalf, to speak on behalf of the master, to accomplish the master's will, and to speak in the master's own voice. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, Yahweh awakens his servant's ears to hear. He awakens my ears to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear. And so the master is clearing the lines of communication with his servant. It's critical that the servant not only have the authority to speak in the master's name, but that he hear correctly the master's message. Think again about the example that I gave at the beginning. What would have happened if I did not give Aiden the authority to speak on my behalf? If he simply bossed his sister around and exercised authority over her that I had not expressly given him. In that case, he would have not been accomplishing my will, but some version of his own preferences. And then he would have been subject to my discipline. Or what if I did give him the authority to speak for me, but he misheard my message? If he told Addie not to come down for dinner, but that she wouldn't get any dinner. This would be equally disastrous because the message does not reflect my character or my desire for my children, but it reflects something else. This is why it's so important that God gives his servant both a taught tongue and taught ears. And the language here of of speaking and hearing helps us to contrast this obedient servant from these verses with the servant that Israel has been up until this point. Far from having taught senses, in Israel's servantship, they have been blind and they have been deaf. Recall previously in Isaiah 42, 18 through 20, where God addresses Israel in their role as his servant. God actually says that there is no one as blind or deaf as his own servant. Israel, because they see many things, but they do not observe them. And though their ears are open, they do not hear. This is the same charge that was brought against Israel all the way back when Isaiah received his first commission to speak the message to God's people. In Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, Yahweh told Isaiah to preach this message to God's people that they would keep on hearing, but they would not understand. Keep on seeing, but not perceive. That their hearts and their ears and their eyes would be dull and deaf and blind. And that this condition would prevent them from being healed and repenting. Israel had failed again and again in their servantship. So much so that their eyes and their ears had been permanently damaged. And this is why an obedient servant who hears and speaks is essential and can do for Israel and for the world what Israel could not do for themselves. He can save not only Israel, but the entire world. 
The author clearly contrasts the state of these two servants, one who cannot see or hear, and one who cannot fail but to see and hear. A perfect example of this contrast is played out on the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem in the midst of what we refer to as the triumphal entry of Jesus. And we're told in John 12 that this is the event that actually fulfills the passages of Isaiah 6 that I just read. Jesus explains to the crowd that the method of his victory would be through suffering and death. But the people, though they hear, are deaf. And though they see, are blinded to the truth. In John 12, 34, the crowd explains what they have understood from the scriptures. That the Christ remains forever. And that's true. But their interpretation of that is that this means that the Christ could not die. And so they don't understand when Jesus says, The Son of Man must be lifted up. Referring to his death on the cross. And so they don't know who this son of man is. They're deaf. And so Jesus appeals to his identity as the obedient servant. And the authority by which he hears and he speaks. John 12, 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And that brings us full circle, back to the actions of the second individual in Isaiah 50, the actions of the servant. Turn back to Isaiah 55. And see what the servant does. And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. The servant obeys. Even in the face of abuse and disgrace and shame, the servant obeys. The servant puts the will of the master above everything else. And he obeys. Verse 6 talks about being beaten and spit on and having a beard pulled out, which was not only painful, but a sign of the greatest possible shame in that culture, even to the point of emasculation. And still the servant obeys. Why? This is the son of man who we heard about from Daniel 7. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Why should he be subjected to this abuse and shame? The answer is in the next section. In Isaiah 50, 7 through 9. And since these verses have showed us that the servant is obedient. And the contrast from the previous chapters is stark. It's important to know the outcome. That the servant is vindicated. Read Isaiah 50, 7 through 9. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint 
And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. These verses answer why the servant can face such shame. Verse 7 says, The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Why can the servant endure mockery and shame? Because in the end, he is right. He is right to obey the Lord. And he is right to follow the plan. Even though it's through suffering. He is right to trust in the Lord. Because Yahweh is the one who vindicates. Because Yahweh is the one who has the final say. All that matters is what his response is. Verse 9 asks the rhetorical question. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And the answer is, no one can. No one can shame the obedient servant. Their accusations simply fall off. It doesn't matter that the servant is spit on or that his beard is pulled out. On earth, those things are shameful. But because they are happening in the obedient service to the master, there is no shame in them. The only shame would be to fail to hear and to speak the word that is given. In the analogy of the message about dinner that my son took to my daughter, what if when he fulfilled my message... She yelled at him or threw things or called him a liar. Would any of those things be true? Or would they have any bearing on him at all? No. He would be vindicated. And only she would face the discipline of her actions. Because my servant, my son, had in fact been right. He will be vindicated by me. He has no reason for shame. Verses 7 through 9 show the overwhelming importance of God's judgment. If the servant is upheld by God, then the opinion of man is meaningless. If you ever, church, need to choose between shame at the hand of man for the glory at the hand of God, choose man's shame for God's glory every time. The servant of God must Do this to demonstrate his obedience to Yahweh above all else and to show that he is dependent on Yahweh for his vindication. Let me give you two places where the New Testament expresses this. As Paul writes to encourage his audience to endure by listing in Hebrews 11 the great heritage of faith of which those in the church are the climax he concludes with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that we, can be, that we can be encouraged to obey, setting aside every weight and sin, looking to Jesus as the founder and the perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Because he, Jesus, was vindicated and received his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God. What a picture that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Literally the most humiliating and shameful form of execution that was ever devised by the mind of man. It was nothing because of what God the Father was going to do. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes to remind the church to love one another by being humble and not seeking their own self-glory. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, we see again this vindication of Christ as Jesus is obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I ask again, why should the Son of Man endure shame and abuse? Because the glory of God the Father is so much more important. And the eternal glory will last so much longer than any earthly shame. So bring on the adversary. Bring on the mockers. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. If the Lord's servant is obedient and the Lord's servant is vindicated, where then does that leave us? How do we, Grace Fellowship Church, apply this? The answer is beautiful in its simplicity. Obey the obedient servant. Read Isaiah 50, 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light... Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have by my hand. You shall lie down in torment. In this section, the author plaints, paints a clear contrast. We see two case studies of people responding one of two ways when faced with darkness. One trusts in the light provided by the Lord, and the other trusts in his or her own light. Let's start with the fact that every single one of us is walking in darkness without a light. Verse 10 says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light. This is addressing the reader. This is addressing all of us. That alone is actually quite comforting. 
to put aside the pretense of life as a series of puppy snuggles and rainbows. We all face darkness and uncertainty. A personal example, Steph and I are facing a thousand unknowns about our upcoming Japan perspective trip. Where will the funds come from? How will our kids do with both of us gone? Will we be able to handle all of the demands on our time as we prepare to go? Will we even make a difference while we're there? This is some of the uncertainty that I'm facing. It's taken as a given in these verses that at times we are going to feel blind and helpless. But the truth is, though we may be blind, it's still our choice where our help comes from. The first response, as we see in verse 10, is to obey the voice of the Lord's servant. Isn't it interesting that this doesn't say obey the voice of the Lord? Well, from what we just learned earlier in this chapter, to all intents and purposes, it does say that. Because the servant is obedient. He hears perfectly and he speaks perfectly. He is the perfect image of a perfect God. And so we trust in him. And so what that looks like in my situation is that Steph and I believe that by obeying the voice of the Lord's servant given in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them also to obey his commands, we will be doing the will of God. And when, not if, when we face hardships or suffering connected to that endeavor, then our help will come from the Lord. We have the chance, brothers and sisters, to trust in the name of God, the name that his son bears. And we know that he is trustworthy because he's already demonstrated it by his obedience even to death on the cross. But all too often, that doesn't happen. Perfect obedience is hard. And so we need reminders and we need warnings that what we're dealing with here matters. We aren't talking about a pleasant family dinner like my story. We're talking about the eternal condition of souls. But sadly, when the stakes are high and the world is dark, we do the worst possible thing. We don't obey. We take control. Verse 11 Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. We turn to our own means of salvation from darkness. We fashion our own lights. Maybe from our good deeds or our own acts of goodness that will somehow earn us salvation. Or maybe we turn to our rational arguments or our relative standing compared with one another. We stop obeying the voice of the Lord's servant. After all, he leads us often through suffering, through mockery and pain. And in our flesh, we believe there must be a better way. 
But God says in verse 11, this you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. It simply doesn't work. The vindication of the servant makes all the difference. In the end, those who obey his voice will be vindicated with him. And the pain and the suffering and the shame will be as nothing. But those who make their own way may avoid these things temporarily. But ultimately, their lot will be torment. And that, my friends, is where we start applying. I want us to see three clear applications here. First, obey Jesus, the obedient servant. We don't have to wonder anymore if we're meeting God's expectations. Quite frankly, we aren't. But Jesus did. The law which showed mankind their failure to meet God's standard was fulfilled in Jesus. And now we have only to look to him. So let God awaken your ears and your mind to be teachable. Don't simply hear God's word, but listen and obey. Jesus has lifted from our shoulders the weight of the law which condemned us to death. And he has replaced it with an easy burden and a light yoke to follow in his footsteps, to trust in the name of the Lord, and to obey the obedient servant. And that leads us to the second application. Face disgrace with faith. Because Jesus obeyed the Father, and because we obey him, we can be confident of two things. First, that we will face persecution and shame. But second, that when Jesus is vindicated, we will be vindicated with him. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice And be glad when his glory is revealed. This is how our missionaries in Uganda, Eric and Lauren Rank, can rejoice in the work that God is doing in them and through them and in their marriage. Despite devastating personal grief as they experience a miscarriage. This is how our college students can joyfully and expectantly pursue godly relationships, submitting to the Lord and to His image of intimacy and marriage. This is how many of you open up your homes or you enter into a home, into the challenge and the inconvenience of community, that the glory of Christ can be revealed in His body, the church. This is how many of you work at Penn State Joyfully revealing your life and your faith to your co-workers despite their misunderstandings or even their belittlement. All of this and more, Grace Fellowship Church, face with faith. And lastly, the third application. Trust in the name of the Lord, not in your own ability. 
Our hope must come from the only reliable light, the identity of God and his servant. Any other hope is to kindle our own fire, which will inevitably fail. But our world is so full of good advice to navigate darkness, isn't it? Look for one minute on social media or listen to one self-help documentary. What you need is your own good body image. It's about how much joy you can get from the objects that you have or the ones that you get rid of. It's about the cause that you're supporting or bringing awareness to. It's about self-care, removing toxic from your life. It's about being loved by those who love you. Maybe family, maybe your friends. It's about being independent and not letting anyone define you but you. It's about being true to yourself and following your heart. My friends, every one of these will fall short. Every one of these sounds so bright, so reliable. But they will fall short of providing the direction and the salvation that we so desperately need. Only the name of the Lord. Only in the name of the Lord is there salvation from darkness. So don't trust in your own strength, but in that of the one that we obey. The obedient servant, Jesus Christ. So to summarize, the obedient servant did not rebel from obediently speaking the word of the father, even in the face of disgrace and shame at the hands of those who were blind and deaf to the will of God. And he did all of this because of his faith in the one who sent him and the vindication and the help that he would receive from God the father. And so because of the servant's obedience, our role becomes to obey him and to trust for our salvation in the name of the Lord, not in our own efforts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for uh, your word spoken to us from Isaiah, um, a prophet so, so, so long ago, but who perfectly captures our need for you. And God, we thank you that you have been preparing your plan from the beginning of time, speaking through your word and sending your son, that we could rely on him and that you would give us an opportunity to see and know you through your son, to follow you, that he would do what we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for all of these things and help us this week to remember them.